you have your Bible, we're going to be going to the book of Acts this morning, my favorite book in the Bible, and hopefully yours if you're Pentecostal. Amen. If you are Pentecostal, I know it is because we found out from the book of Acts what it's all about. Amen. It's about the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to begin with verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me, but John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's the question that is on their mind. Wilt thou at this time again restore the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come together tonight, and we're thanking and praising you, Lord, for the spirit that we feel here, the anointing of God. And I pray, Lord, you will be upon me. Lord, be present with the word. God, as it goes forth today, be with us here in spirit and in power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give some folks your Christian greeting this morning. Welcome to the house of God. And as I know that the youth department is uh, going to be serving you up, Sister Misty's Lundby's uh, Mexican uh, dinner today. Amen. After church is a fundraiser, and you're all anticipating, I'm sure, as I am, to get a hold of some of those good enchiladas and, and all those fixings. I'll try to make this as quick as possible. But I do want to talk about... <laughs> Y'all laugh! What are you laughing for? <laughs> I did it. I did do it Thursday. Some people, some people had their bets against me, but I did do it Thursday. I want to talk to you this morning about the politics of God. The politics of God. Now, we're living in some very interesting times. I do not remember a time in U.S. history politics when the country was so divided, except that decade marking the mid-60s to the mid-70s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war protest movement, and uh, many of you are too young to have remembered. You weren't a lot alive. You were not around at that time. But uh, believe me, uh, politics was a lot more active, and the country, the situation the country was in was a lot more desperate in those days. Murders, assassinations, uh, military reprisals, people being killed on campuses, all kinds of things were going on uh, in that time period that uh, cities were burning. It was just a, a terrible time, and you felt like the country was coming apart at the seams. But then this baby boomer, boomer generation, my generation, back then, were highly politicized. Campuses were taken over. There were sit-ins. There were love-ins. There were marches. There were protests. There were riots. Cities were burning. And there was a whole slew of homemade, homebrew anarchists like the Weathermen and other groups that were bombing things and killing people and assassination. Uh, it was a time that you felt like things were just being torn apart. There was no clear or certain direction for the future, it seemed, at those times. Then came the recession of 73, the Arab-Israeli war, which spawned uh, a, a period of time that brought such... Uh, uh, Poverty to a 
America, double-digit double digit inflation, no jobs, oil crisis, gas shortages. You can't remember, but I can, standing in line to get the gasoline at the gas pump and then getting up there and saying we're sold out, we don't have any more. I'll come back tomorrow because your license plate has an even number. Today is the odd number. Uh, we're only serving odd number license plates today. You don't remember those days, but I do. You don't know what it's like to have to go down with a garden hose and siphon gas out of one tank of a car to put it in another so that so-so had gas to be able to get to work the next day because you couldn't buy gas. And when you did, it had tripled in price from what you had been paying just a short time before. And those were some very hard times. And they tempered a generation, and they tempered America and brought things more or less. And then some of you can remember the Reagan years and the Clinton years and so forth and so on. And so it was a you know, happy time in the Reagan years and, and happy times in the Clinton years. But now something is happening. And in my day, an entire generation of pop culture music makes stars out of unlikely performers such as Bob Dylan, who can't sing. But he went to the bank with billions because of what he couldn't do and did. And he was widely considered the prophet poet of the age. But who could forget Peter, Paul, and Mary's uh, rendition of a Dylan tune blowing in the wind. It became the mantra. It became the anti-war protest song of an anti-war movement of a generation of people, of my generation of people. But the glitter of youthful fame has long fallen from the shoulders of Dylan. And all the stars of his generation and mine have suffered the fate of generational irrelevance. Time marches on and youth must have a new sound, a new drumbeat to march to. And today it has come full circle and I am as clueless to the current music scene today as my elders had been to mine in my own time. Two days ago there was a rally in Chicago shut down due to massive protest. The, in the, in the Opinion of some people, the inflammatory and unpresidential rhetoric of one candidate in particular has spawned what I believe will become an ongoing movement for the rest of his campaign and indeed for the rest of all campaigns in this presidential cycle. His campaign has not been the only one to suffer such tactics. It has already happened on the other side of the aisle to the two competing candidates. They've had their speeches interrupted. They've had protest movements showing up at their places. And so it is not confined to a particular uh, political agenda necessarily. What's happening? What is happening in America? Uh, something is so alarming. What is so alarming is the sense of anger and frustration that is rising, that is boiling beneath the surface of this country and is leaking out and, and must be spilled into the streets. And it must come about that, that there will be a radicalization of the whole process. And while we are searching for the source of blame, which I believe comes from a polarization of politics. Uh, by that I mean people who get in positions of power and they have an agenda that they think is right for the rest of the people. And they use that power to force that agenda and ram it down people's throats. That leads to a polarization of political sides that it is impossible that such conflicts could not come to a head. Uh, these conflicts cannot be avoided. 
What works in a democratic society, what has always worked in the past in America, is when both sides of the aisle can come together and formulate a compromise a, a, and seek a middle ground and hammer out agreements that have some of what everybody needs and sacrifices some of what everybody wants in order for us to be able to uh, move forward with some kind of, a, of an agreement that is worked out. But we have come to a point in America where uh, people's opinions and people's viewpoints and people's wishes and desires uh, have, have become extreme on the opposite ends of each other. And so there's this pressure of extremeness that is here. Uh, and and uh, it, it's going to, to, to happen. And, and uh, we are in the midst of seeing a, a party becoming unraveled. In fact, it isn't just one party. It's both parties are becoming unraveled by the boiling undercurrents of anger and frustration that are at an extreme. Not only are the parties becoming unraveled, but we are going to be witnessing a nation pulling itself apart and becoming unraveled. These protests that shut down this, uh, uh, this political rally in Chicago did not come from one group. There was no one particular group. There was a mixture of two or three different elements, several elements. In fact, it has come to be uh, that what happened in Ferguson and what happened in Baltimore, the, the public exposure to protesters and rioting and people having issues with things is now the mantra. It is now the go-to politics and the policy of any of these groups of people for whatever their cause, whatever their reasons are. They know that they can go where they're going to get media focus and attention and they're going to make a fuss and they're going to bring together a group of people and they're going to get their voice heard. They're going to be heard. And it is not anything different than what we're seeing globally around the world. The Arab Spring that uh, a few years back toppled governments in Egypt, in Libya, that's going to, that's happening in Syria. Uh, all, all of these movements that are coming from the youth, the young generation of those countries that wish to rise up, that wish that feel disenfranchised, that feel unempowered. We have today a generation of young people that have abandoned the American dream. They do not believe that there is any future of an American dream for them. They do not think that they can own a home. They are living in their parents' basements. They are adults living in their parents' basements without jobs or with service jobs and minimum wage jobs. They see no clear path forward. And uh, they are the future of America. They're only a few years, a decade or so more away from holding the political power in the office that will be their time in their day. I would not be surprised if there's not going to be an assassination or an attempt at an assassination before this political cycle is over and done with. But politics, for sure, will never be the same in the United States from this point, from this cycle onward. They will never be the same. And it is surprising the pundits, it's surprising the people that are supposed to know and those that are supposed to be able to predict and foresee how things are going to turn out. No one knows how anything is going to work anymore or how anything is going to turn out. It's a total flip-flop. It's up in the air for grabs. You and I live in these time periods and you and I are affected by the processes. You're, we are affected by what happens, by the political outcomes, by who gets in power and, they, and the decisions they make and the administrative policies they pursue and the executive orders they write. You and I are affected by it. We cannot help but be affected by it. And so because affected, we are concerned. We are concerned. But the more thoughtful of us and the more thoughtful of Americans do not really know where to go at this point because what the process is throwing out to us reflects options for the church that seem to be going nowhere on either side of the aisle. 
And there is a force that is about to break loose in America. It's a force which Bernie Sanders has so successfully tapped into. And it is this young and upcoming generation, the high school and the college age kids today that are moving uh, in, uh, moving into this election cycle. And if they can't vote, they can protest. And they are going to change things radically. And I don't trust them. I don't trust them with my Social Security benefits. I don't trust them with my pension, my IRAs, my savings for the future that I've set aside to live on when I am retirement age. I don't trust them. And if you're my age, you wouldn't either. As you know, that when they seize power and they get control of the politics and the process and they can make the laws and do the voting and they're the senators and the congressmen and the presidents and the representatives and the governors, they are going to take away what those of us have set aside for ourselves to have. And my generation, the baby generation, baby boom generation, is the unfortunate sandwich generation that was forced to pay for the pensions and the security of our elders but will be robbed by, of our own security by our children. Mark my words. Mark my words. This cry for wealth redistribution is nothing but political robbery. And when it's passed into a law, because it's legal, they can get away with it. But it's still robbery. The politics of Israel in the time of Christ was, was equally bad, if not worse. In fact, it was worse. Rome was the world's superpower. What the United States is to the world today, Rome was ten times or a hundred times more. They were the superpower that was not concerned about being politically correct, that was not concerned about playing politics in other countries, and that was reaching to take over every country, every kingdom, every nation, and every culture within its lengthy grasp. Rome, Pax Romana, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome was a real deal, and it was Pax Romana at the point of a sword. It was the peace of Rome that was imposed upon you whether you wanted it or not. Rome was ruthless. Its empire, ruthless. It was ruled by tyrants and evil men. Pilate, the governor of Judea, was ruthless. And uh, he had no sooner gotten to Jerusalem, but he imposed Roman culture at the very heart of the nation of Israel by placing statues of Caesar and statues of Jupiter within the temple complex, and so causing a riot amongst the Jews that could only be suppressed at the point of a sword and by killing and slaughtering Jewish protesters and rioters. He didn't stop there. He wasn't done there with that. He saw the money that flowed in because of tithe into the temple treasuries, and he robbed those treasuries and took that money for building purposes uh, for Rome and for building his building projects. He assassinated and he murdered protesters and non-protesters alike. He was ruthless. And it was so surprising to the Sadducees and the Pharisees when it came time for Jesus to be put on trial that Pilate tried desperately to wiggle out passing the death sentence on him. This man who knew no uh, barrier, no no uh, pol self-policing or control of himself at any other point in dealing with Jews did not want to put Jesus to death. He was almost crawling trying to get out of there not to put Jesus to death. 
Such was the anger and the danger and the boiling point beneath the surface at the time of Christ that revolt against Rome was only one generation off from the crucifixion of Jesus. Christ died about the year 33, 34 A.D. By 66 A.D., the, the Jews had gone into full-throated revolt against Rome, had driven out the Roman soldiers and the armies, had taken over uh, Fortress Antonio, which stood at the northern corner overlooking the Temple Complex and Temple Mount, had driven out the Romans, and for four years had kept them at bay until 70 A.D. and Titus sacked Jerusalem, and a few years after, the last holdout at Masada was destroyed. That boiling point Jesus would tap into and it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy when the Jews said to Pilate let his blood be upon us and upon our children they did not know what they were saying and speaking but it became a self-fulfilled prophecy for within a generation some of those who said it and those children that they had invoked that curse upon should come to pass that they would suffer the same fate as Jesus when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. It took about a year for the Romans to capture the city. They've laid siege to it. They've surrounded it with walls. Jesus said you would be surrounded on every side and cut off and there would not be one stone left upon another on the Temple Mount that would not be cast down. The Romans surrounded it and took the city piecemeal by piecemeal. While inside the city, the politics of the city had become so fractured that every, every warlord, every captain rebel had his own group of soldiers that couldn't get along with and wouldn't work with the other. They each had their own political agenda that they wanted to see happen whenever they took the throne of David back and kicked the Romans out. And they wouldn't work with one another. And they fought with one another in the city while the Romans were fighting all of them from without the city. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus said, and that surely was a house divided. We're talking about some politics and the results of those politics at that time of Christ. The original terrorists were Jews called Sakari. Sakari is a word for the long, thin blade or knife that they kept hidden on their person. These were zealots. These were terrorists. And anyone suspected of collaborating with Rome or being friendly with Rome or cooperating with Rome had uh, had a danger of ever going out in public. If they were in a public place, like in a marketplace that was crowded with people, and a Sakari was standing next to them and had marked them for assassination, they'd get up close to them and they'd stick the dagger between their ribs and then run away and, ho and holler, terrorist, terrorist, zealot, 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 zealotis, zealotis. And there would be a riot and somebody would be dead. Roman soldiers had suffered the same fate from these Sicarii that would sidle up next to them and then stab them. It was like the American troops now stationed in, in Afghanistan and stationed in other places where they are not safe because the local people, the terrorists, want them out of there and will try to kill them in any way that they can. Such was the politics during the time of Christ. We're talking about Jesus' ministry in the most tense period of time, a time when that nation wanted independence and freedom, struggled against the impositions and administrative policies of Rome and its governors. It wished to be pushed free and to escape and to get out of it and to change. And they wanted a different administration desperately. They wanted somebody on the throne of politics that favored their religious point of view. And they wanted it desperately. Zolotis was another name for these political activists, zealots, of which there were several in the immediate close band of Jesus' disciples. I can name at least two, Thomas and Judas. Both were zealots, which meant that they were political activists that wished for and wanted a change of dynasty. Even before then, the Essenes were a group of Jewish priests and, and, and people who believed 
in the restoration of the priesthood of Aaron. Now, some of you may think, well, there was a temple at the time of Christ, and it was being administered to by priests. There was a high priest. We know that there was a high priest. He put Jesus on trial. But what you may not know in history was that, that those priests were not legitimate priests of the, of the descendants of Aaron. That priesthood had been gone away with and gone underground some 160 years before during the Maccabean period when Judas Maccabees threw out the Greeks and took over and set up a throne again. But instead of, instead of using the priests that had been traditionally used, he put his own people, his own family in the priesthood. And it was these illegal priests that the Essene movement was so against. And the Essenes were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls of, of great pain. And they wanted the wicked priest overthrown so that the righteous priest could now take uh, his rightful place in the throne of Jerusalem. They wanted a son of Cohen, a son of Aaron, to become the priest. And it was these people that John the Baptist may have studied among and been influenced by uh, when he came out of the wilderness and came out of the desert preaching so mightily about the coming kingdom of God. There will be a political change. There's a kingdom coming. It is the kingdom of God. And it was a message that resonated loud and clear with all of the Jews of Palestine who heard it, who desperately wanted a kingdom of God to replace this wicked government that they found themselves under. Can we give God a hand, please? Hallelujah. We have come to the end of Christ's ministry. It is the last minute of the last hour of the last day that he will spend on the planet in a physical body. He's about to depart, to ascend into heaven for good. He will not come back until, until an undetermined time in the future, which is not given. He has gathered them together. They being assembled together, them commanded them that they should not be depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, if you heard of me. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Imagine. The whole reason these men had attached themselves to Jesus initially was for a purpose very different than what Jesus had envisioned for them. Some of them were out-and-out out zealous, political activists. They all came to him by John the Baptist's recommendation or otherwise because it looked like he was going to be the one who would come and set up the kingdom and change the politics and make things right for the people of God. It looked like he was going to be the one. And they uh, attached themselves to him, believing and hoping and praying that, that soon it would be all over and we're going to get back to the Bible way of things. Wilt thou restore again at this time the kingdom to Israel? Three and a half years of discipling with him, of being trained by him. Jesus all the while talking to them about something else. Fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you harvesters in the field, which is white, ready to be harvested. I'll make you fishers of men. My kingdom is not of this world. My servants would fight if it were. All the while trying to tell them and talk to them and talk to them and tell them, I've got plans for you. They don't have anything to do with where you're at or what you think or what's going on around you right now. But I have something in store for you that it will blow your mind if you ever could really understand where I'm going with you. You would, you would, they didn't get it. Hallelujah. He was about to depart. And what do they want to know? 
will you at this time restore the kingdom? It was a question asked, such a question asked, that led to Christ's discourse on end-time prophecy, which you will find in three Gospels, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. When Jesus, watching some people come by and cast their money into the treasury of the temple, said that it wouldn't be long that, that this temple would be cast down and not one stone would be left upon another. And it led to that question, that discourse, Lord, when will these things happen and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? These tremendous end-time discourses on prophecy that Jesus gave came from such a question concerned itself with the politics of the here and the now. It was a concern following their experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, 10 through 12, and in Mark 9, 11 through 12, they see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, Paul, and John, they see him with Moses and Elijah. And they hear the voice from heaven. They see that Jesus is transformed into glowing white. And what do they ask? What do they ask? They ask uh, this question. Why then do the scribes say that Elias must come first? They knew something about Bible prophecy. They knew that there was something in the Bible that talked about a Messiah coming, a promised one, a deliverer, who would set up the kingdom again. Uh, that his name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The government would rest upon his shoulder. Amen. They knew something about that. And they knew that Elijah must come first. And they had not seen Elijah. And they're still looking for Elijah. And every year an atonement and a Passover Seder, when Jews have a Seder, they set a place at the table. And no one sits there. That's Elijah's chair. And they send a child to go and open the door and let Elijah come in because they're still looking for Elijah. But Jesus said, if you only knew, Elijah has already come. He's already come. He's been here and gone. And they did to him what they would. It was this veiled reference to John the Baptist that Jesus made here that after the fact, the writers of the gospel were so careful to write in the gospel story, making much of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ. But it would not be until after the day of Pentecost and after the fact that they would have put that all together and understood that Elijah had indeed come or the spirit that was on Elijah had come upon John the Baptist and brought him out of the wilderness preaching the kingdom of God is near. Repent, the kingdom of God is hand. And repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, sinners, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Politics are going to be different. Things are going to change. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It was a question the Pharisees wanted answered in Luke 17, 20 and 21. When they wanted to know when the kingdom of God should come. Pharisees wanted to know when will the kingdom of God come. That was the concern of the time and the land. It concerned the hour. The frustration. The anger. The rage. The desire for political change. The desire for things to be better. To be made different. So stressing that it was on everybody's mind, it was on everybody's thought. Everybody wanted to understand what was happening. Even the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus' answer was, the kingdom of God does not come by observation. For you cannot say here is the kingdom or there is the kingdom. But what you need to understand is the kingdom of God is already here. It's already here. <laughs> Hallelujah. And to the church today, that is so concerned about the politics of our time and our generation. I want to tell you that the day is coming shortly when it will not matter whether you vote or don't vote. Because nobody is going to represent our interests. Nobody is going to have our back. Nobody is going to be taking care of us. And it will not matter whether you cast a vote or do not cast a vote. 
Do not worry about becoming activated in this life. Amen. By the politics that are around us. There is something else. Something else. That we need to be concerned about. That brings us back to our text this morning. Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Church, Jesus didn't call us here and put us in this generation to become politically activists and to be concerned about voting and casting ballots and who got in power around us. He did not call us to protest march and movements and to become all worried and wrapped up and tied up in a candidate for their false promises. What he called us to do was get full of the Holy Ghost, to become filled with the Holy Ghost, to get full of the power of God in the anointing of God. And don't just do it for yourself, but do it that you might preach the kingdom of God is here. It's here. It's now. It's among us. Preaching in Jerusalem. Preaching in Judea. Even go to Samaria, all of Samaria. Don't stop there. Go everywhere you can go. Go to the uttermost part of the earth. Preach it everywhere. Preach it everywhere. Preach it, preach it, preach it. When souls convert people to Jesus, when they get the Holy Ghost, God will change their mind. God will change their thinking. God will change their politics. You know and I know as well that the politics of our country and of our world are the politics of sin. They're highly sexualized politics. You don't get far from sex in the politics that surround us. And that is the way of the world is to be caught up and tangled up in things that are sinful and reproachful and evil. That is the way of the world. And we rightly don't like it. And we're rightly concerned. But our business is to stay focused on our business. Amen. Our business is to preach the gospel. Amen. That saves souls and to carry it around the world as far as we can go. The mixture of politics and prophecy are moving us toward a time when political activism or concern may no longer be a creditable option for the church. But revival will always be an option for the church. Revival will always be an option for the church. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to stand together. Musicians, come. I'm, I'm bringing it to a close. Hallelujah. I'm bringing it to a close. Oh, you didn't think I could do it, but I can do it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. T.F. Tenney told us, he said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. T.F. Tenney, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Hallelujah. During this election cycle, it really doesn't matter in New York State how you vote. If you're trying to follow a godly politics, it don't matter in New York State how you vote. Might not even be concerned about it. Hallelujah. But we can win souls. I was... I'm getting ready to go preach for Brother Hibbert for his mission Sunday in a few weeks. 
and uh, and I am getting uh, getting some slides. I'm working on a slide and getting a slide presentation together of our brother Azubu in Sierra Leone, the work of God. And so the last few days I've been working with hundreds and hundreds of pictures he sent me. And as I'm looking at these pictures and I see the church going and growing and what's happening, I cannot help but feel so excited about what is happening. But I want you to know, Free Spirit Fellowship, right here, put that on the map. It was right here. Hallelujah. The training for that young man to go in the ministry occurred right here. He might have been saved somewhere else, but he got discipled right here. He's my disciple. He's my trainee. Amen. And he's one of us. He's a member of this church. He's still a member of this church. And he's over there doing what I said back in college, in those meetings at college. What happened someday that some of those students that I was working with and teaching would go back to their homeland and start churches and bring the work of God to their country. And he's doing it. He's, we're doing it together. That impulse to build and plant churches, which has driven me. My, my, my wife told me this morning, she said, preach your passion. Pre preach your passion, whatever excites you. I thought about that. Yes, she's right. What has always excited me and what my passion is, is planting churches. It's starting churches. It's building churches. And that passion is now to be transferred into the shoulders of other men who are going out into Waterville Amen. And starting something in Waterville in Albany County. Brother Heller and Sister Heller are working there along with me. We're working together to get something started there in that place. Amen. And there are young men that are coming up under ministry under me. Amen. And the measure of their ministry will, will for me the measure of what they have got and whether they have got anything at all will be what they do with their license once they get it or even before they get it what they do with their ministry and what they're calling because this man that stands before you didn't take over somebody's church he wasn't handed anything he wasn't given anything nobody opened the door to him he went with his wife and his baby girls and he started in somebody's living room having church having church preaching and God brought it from there to here It's time to grow the church. It's time to grow the church. It's time to preach the gospel. It's time to understand the kingdom is already here. And that's the politics of God. The politics of God. The politics of God. It's not looking around us at what's going on in the political arena around us. But it's looking at the kingdom of God and what he came here to do and what he called us to do, what we're commissioned to do. Get busy with being the kingdom of God. Let's worship God. Hallelujah.